This episode of the Ready Room is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com/trekfm. And also by TrekFan. TrekFan isn't just a Star Trek fan club; it's a challenge. You will explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. And in the spirit of an enlightened future, Trek Fan is absolutely free—not just free to play, but completely free. Find out more by visiting fm.trekfan.org. I'm Jeff Combs. I'm everywhere on Star Trek, and you keep tuning in to Trek FM. Welcome to the Ready Room, show number one hundred forty-five. Visions from an alien guide. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me this week is John Mills. We'll be talking about some Star Trek news, including NASA's warp ship design concept, Star Trek Continues Episode Three, Fairest of Them All, and how you can explore the Enterprise D eight bits at a time. Then, in the feature, we're joined by Alice Baker and Daniel Handlin. To discuss the DS9 episode Rapture, so let's step into the ready room. Hello, John. It's great to have you back with me on the Ready Room. It's been quite a long while since. Well, I guess it's been a while since you were on, and certainly a while since you co-hosted with me. How's everything going? Uh, it's going very, very well. Thank you for asking, and thank you for having me back on. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, we're recording this show on Father's Day for you in the states, and I know that you have two children, so I really appreciate you setting some late night time aside to talk Star Trek with me. How was your Father's Day? Uh, it was wonderful. Thank you very much for asking. Uh, yeah, I got a uh, Superman card, which, gotta admit, it started getting a little dusty in the room. <laughs> I, I felt a little touched. It was nice. Uh, and I cool. trust you had a, a good Father's Day as well. We did. We did. We had a very busy one. My daughter had her ballet performance, and they did the Nutcracker in June. So it's really <laughs> Christmas spirit in the summer here, but it was、uh, great. She had a number of. Key roles this year, which was nice. So, so it was a good Father's Day. Excellent. Well, let's jump right on into the news here. Get people into some Star Trek related topics, and the first one is the story which everyone has seen, unless you've been living in a cave somewhere on a planet that is mysteriously orbiting very close to Vulcan. And this are <laughs> this is the project from a NASA engineer. Who has created? And I have to specify here a CGI design concept for a warp ship called the IXS Enterprise. And I just specify that because as I see a lot of the headlines go by in the media, you would think that NASA has actually built the ship and it's orbiting <laughs> the planet right now. So, John, tell us a little bit about this concept here and what you think about it.、Uh, well, I can tell you that as a design. Uh, if I had a couple of billion to throw around, if I, if I had government money, 
and I saw this design, I would just, if, here, here's the wallet. I open it up to you. <laughs> Please, by all means, build this ship. Find a way to make it happen. Um, as far as comprehending the science, I, okay, great. I, I mean, this is obviously just, um, hopefully NASA will get some money out of this after all of their funding troubles, because I would love to see a ship like this take off. I, yeah. It doesn't, honestly, the design is so cool. It doesn't even have to go to warp. I just want to see this ship built. That'd be awesome. It would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, I think that's the key going to warp that you say you don't comprehend the science behind it. I'm, I'm, there's just a theory behind it and it's mm-hmm. almost unrelated to the ship itself uh, for the most part, I think. Although the way that the ship is designed, um, mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it for some reason yet and you're listening to this, look in the show notes for this episode on the show page or in the notes in the podcast info box and we'll have a link there and there's actually a photo album mark raidmaker who's the cgi artist who worked together with the nasa engineer whose name is harold white to design this raidmaker has a Flickr album and he has lots and lots of photos so if you've seen just the one on a lot of news pages you can go there and you can see a lot of close-up shots and different angles and there's this ring around the ship and at first I thought the ring might be related to creating artificial gravity or something like that, just sort of right. thinking about 2001 A Space Odyssey and that type of design. But actually, that ring is what creates the warp bubble in this theory. Yep. So it's not the tanks on the side that look kind of like nacelles. Those are those are serving some other purpose. I don't know exactly what the purpose is. Uh, yeah, it, storage or fuel or something, something like, that, like that. Probably fuel, I, I would bet. Pro- dilithium crystals must be larger <laughs> than we thought, I guess. Uh, Unless Janeway I, is going to be on here, and then they would be Folger's crystals. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> uh, well, I can tell you that um, as an avid Star Wars fan, the uh, ring was immediately uh, recognized as necessary for any sort of interstellar travel. I mean, it, it looks like a hyperspace ring. So. Uh-huh. I think it's I think it's wonderful that even NASA is working to bring the two fan bases together to unite to get us into deep space. That's Bravo. right. That's why apparently this design also calls for a Wookiee co-pilot. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to go too well. They have a tendency <laughs> to take things apart right before you're trying to leave somewhere. <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> So this is a really, it's a cool design, but again, it's a CGI design concept for a warp-capable ship. And as I understand it, again, this isn't a NASA-sanctioned project. This is a scientist, an engineer and physicist who works at NASA, who has been working on this as one of his projects. And he worked together with Mark Rademacher to actually create the visuals that we're now seeing everywhere. So it isn't that NASA has an actual warp program that I'm aware of to build this ship and send it out there somewhere, although maybe that is something that will come to be as more and more people get excited about this and more and more people let NASA and the government know that this is something that we support and we would like to see. It would be great. You know, smaller smaller concepts have been you know successful at getting larger projects off the ground so by all means let this guy keep doing what he's doing because it grabbed everybody's attention as soon as they saw something yeah maybe just maybe this could be 
they'll look back in history and they'll say, you know what? It didn't, it didn't immediately come to fruition, but this is the point where people started thinking about it seriously. That would be great. Yeah. You may be right because here's the first tangible thing that it's not just purely an abstract concept of how you would do it because the, the theory about how you might create a warp bubble or travel faster than light or fold space to shorten the distance, I mean, that goes back for decades now. People have talked about it and theorized about it for a long time. So we will put a link in the show notes so you can go see more of the design here and see how they might be able to pack. So I don't know what kind of engine this would really be because one key here is that the energy needed, the mass energy would be the size of Jupiter right now, if we were to try to right. even do it. And what Harold White is going for is to try to get that down to something the size of the Voyager 1 probe. So mm-hmm. there's a long way to go on that. But you can see how they might pack it in here. And let us know what you think about the designs. Hit us up on Twitter. Our username is TrekFM. And we'd love to hear what you think about it. And see if you're as excited as we are. You should be. You really should be if you're a Star Trek fan and you want to visit strange new worlds. Well, before we go to the next story here, we would like to tell you about our first sponsor for today's show, and that's Trek Fan. And actually, Trek Fan is something that I think Harold White would probably love as well, because Trek Fan, it's a Star Trek fan club, but it's not your ordinary Star Trek fan club. It's really about taking your love of Star Trek and putting it into action And getting together with other fans, they have starships around the country, so they will bring fans together in real life. And you can actually collaborate with those fans to solve real-life mission objectives and really put your Star Trek love into action instead of just doing what we do and sitting here behind microphones and talking about it all the time. You can get out there and really do something. So it's a really cool type of fan club and they have a lot of different things for you to do there if you go to fm.trekfan.org you'll find everything one of the things we want to really highlight this week as we did last week is starfleet academy and john i know you like to read star trek novels don't you very much yeah well you should check out trek fan as well because what they do is with starfleet academy they will actually send you a random star trek novel absolutely free. And then you read the novel. And when you're done, you don't send it back to them. You give it to a friend. You pass it along so other people can enjoy Star Trek. And all they want you to do is to write a review of the novel and send that back to them. And then they're compiling a database of Star Trek novels, of book reviews for everyone to enjoy. So it's a great way to spread the Star Trek love. And again, it's absolutely free. That sounds fantastic. Seriously, as a fan and as somebody who likes to read, that sounds like a a pretty fantastic. And I already have like three names of people that I would pass the books on to. I'm I am absolutely going to sign up for this. This sounds wonderful. Yeah, and the best part about it is that it is absolutely free to join the club. So all you need to do is go to fm.trekfan.org, and that's a special URL that lets them know that you heard about it here on the Ready Room and on Trek FM. So please do use the special URL. Go sign up, and while you're there, look around at all the other things they have to offer. If you love Star Trek and you're into being challenged, this is definitely the place you want to go. And again, you can get that free Star Trek novel to read and pass along. So go to fm.trekfan.org. Check it out today. And we really thank TrekFan for their support of the show and the network. Now, one thing, John, that TrekFan will not do 
is they're not going to strike you with lightning and pull you into a mirror universe. That's a little disappointing. It's a little bit, you know, I mean, but we get we safety is very important for Trek fans, I'm sure. Now, Star Trek continues, on the other hand, they want you to be safe, but they will suck you into the mirror universe, which is exactly what they've done with their third episode, which is titled Fairest of Them All. And it's premiering right now as we speak, as we're recording this show at Supernova in Sydney, Australia. And uh, they're going to be making it uh, available worldwide on uh, Vimeo and YouTube. So, uh, at you know, <laughs> run out and go watch it. Please. At the same time, right? So it should yeah. be, I know it's the same day. I don't know if it's the exact same hour or not. But by the time you hear this show, it'll already be Wednesday. It takes us a few days to edit the show and get it out there to you. So it'll definitely be on Vimeo and YouTube right now. So head on over and watch it for sure. Yeah. And looking at the, you know, the behind the scenes documentary uh, that they had on Wired TV, where, where they went around and they talked about the episode and how they were approaching it. It looks fan- it looks fantastic. It looks like what every fan would want to see in an in a return to the mirror universe, because there is and they specifically say it in the documentary. There is that end of the mirror mirror episode where mirror Spock has that what's he going to do right how is this going to play out for him we never go back and find out well i mean you know as, yes we saw later episodes in deep space nine and everything but what specifically happened and how would they have approached that back in the 60s back when mm-hmm. you know if this had been a real season i think that's a wonderful question to ask and i uh, you know i applaud them for doing this one of the one of the questions that triggered in my brain though as i'm sitting there thinking about it is one of probably the most beloved Star Trek movie still is Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan right would they have gone back to Khan you know like would they have gone back to Khan back on the original show if it had made it to season four or season five if they went back to Mirror Universe and you say this is how it would have played out is there an argument for the writers deciding Let's go back and find Khan. And oh my gosh, we've just kicked ourselves into a mirror universe where Star Trek II never existed. And that's a terrible place to live, so far as I'm concerned. But it really, you know, it sort of turns the gears of how would they have approached Khan if they went back to him. But that in and of itself, that question being triggered, they've really hit a note with going back with this episode. It immediately, you know, there, there is no reason to, to sit on this and not go run out and watch it. Or sit down and stream it, I guess I should say. Because that is an incredibly fascinating what if. I mean, what if they did go that fourth season and they had an opportunity to go back? Wow, I can't. And the whole Continues crew, they're doing a bang-up job with everything so far. So I'm thrilled to see this episode. Now, John, you didn't just let the cat out of the bag on Star Trek Continues episode four, did you? returning to <laughs> spacing. <laughs> I, now, that's a I can't great say question. <laughs> yeah. Can't say anymore. Yeah. You don't want to firestorm. <laughs> you don't want Starfleet intelligence on Google plus to pick up your story and run with it. Section 31 will be all over me so fast. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's a great question. And, and I wonder too, because it just wasn't really in the nature of the storytelling at the time in the sixties to revisit these things again. Mm-hmm. But it does make you wonder, 
like would they have for a fourth or a fifth season gone back to Khan? And would they have gone back to the mirror universe? And it almost feels like they probably would have gone back to the mirror universe sometime before the end of the series, just because they really left that question there unanswered. And it was such a popular episode. The thing about Star Trek Continues is that they are going to just extremes to make sure that these episodes really do feel like they were written and shot in the 1960s, that it truly Mm -hmm. is a fourth season of the original series, not a modern day series that's just telling new stories set in the TOS timeline. Right. And so when you watch this, yeah, you really do. Now, I haven't seen it yet because we're recording it right as it premieres. Uh, But I have had James Kerwin, who wrote the episode and directed it, and Chris White on Continuing Mission, Episode 3. They were with me back at least two months ago. It may have even been three months ago or or more to talk about Episode 3. And at that point, they couldn't give too many details because I was really the first person that they had talked to on a podcast Mm -hmm. anywhere about Episode 3 specifically. So if you want to go back, though, and hear a bit about how the idea came about and how James and Vic Magnana, who plays Kirk, worked together on the story to bring it about, definitely go listen to Continuing Mission Episode 3. And also I had Doug Drexler on Continuing Mission Episode 1 to talk a lot about doing the visuals for for Star Trek Continues and about how he did the Enterprise. And he has some great insights into how you make the Enterprise look like it did in the 60s, which is something that most people can't quite capture these mm-hmm. days when they try to do a CGI. So so they really are working very hard to bring you in to that feeling that this really is, like you say, a follow-up from the next season to mm-hmm. the events of Mirror Mirror here. Now tell me just a little bit more about this documentary because you were able to go and check out Wired and Condé Nast Entertainment, they were on the set Mm -hmm. for the filming of episode three, and they're doing what is at least a five-part behind-the-scenes documentary. The first two parts are already released, and parts three, four, and five are going to be released in the weeks to come. What what did you learn? Just what's one tidbit that you learned in that documentary? The the most wonderful thing to learn, because as you were talking about, that they've really strived to make this look and feel like it really happened back then, not a modern time, not a modern storyline set, you know, with the trappings of the old show, but an actual real episode from back then is they talk about in the documentary on this episode that they analyzed uh, in extreme detail the way the lighting was done. Mm-hmm. And it actually shows them setting up the lighting and doing oh, the cool. innovative stuff so that when they went back to specific sets that were used in the original mirror mirror episode, it showed, you know, the guys on ladders up there with like empty Coca-Cola shipping crates Uh to create the bars so that the lighting was a little bit darker and Uh a little bit uh, crisscrossed the way that it was in the mirror universe episode where things were just a little bit off. And I have to give them a huge shout out for the fact that they went and they got this, fake goatee for the guy playing Spock Mm -hmm. that Habercorn, you know, yeah, they got, uh, this hand woven real hair and like you looked at it and I was like, wait, it looks convincing. And I was like, wow, that's, 
you're doing this like it, it's so obvious how much love yeah. goes into this. How how they're actually doing something that really emphasizes what made everybody fall in love with it in the first place. Uh, uh, that that feeling that you get looking at everything, it, like it really stirs. Just watching the documentary, it really stirs something inside you to see it again. It's wonderful. Mm-hmm. It is incredible. The the now this sounds really interesting because I they've talked to me before about the lighting. Uh, we had. We had a lot of the guys on the ready room about, I don't know how many shows ago. It's been quite a while now after episode two, Lalani came out and they talked a bit about doing the lighting like that, but you're talking specifically about the mirror universe lighting. So that's mm-hmm. going to be really, really fascinating to see. So these documentaries are available on wired TV. So you can go over and check those out there. And then one last point here, for those of you going to star Trek, Las Vegas, on July 31st, the opening day of the convention in Las Vegas, Trek Movie is going to be holding a free screening of Episode 3, Fairest of Them All. And after the screening, there's going to be a Q&A session with the cast and crew that includes Vic Magnana, Chris Duan, who of course plays Scotty, his father's role, Asia DeMarcos, who's playing Marlena in this episode, Kipley Brown, and also James Kerwin will be there, some more members of the crew, and Michael Dorn will be making a special appearance because he's making a special appearance in episode three. So if you're going to be at Star Trek Las Vegas, be sure to check out Trek Movies' screening of the episode. So we'll put a not? link in the show notes to some more information about this. And again, Vimeo, YouTube, go watch the episode there, Wired TV, you can check out the documentary. So, John, we have one more story in news today, and 8-Bit seems to be all the rage. We've got Trexels, the game out for iPhone and iPad now. I just had the designer of Trexels on Continuing Mission a couple of weeks ago to talk about creating the game and writing the missions. And now here is another thing called Pixel Trek, which is a website that it's not so much a game as just a way for you to roam around the ship and explore the nooks and crannies in 8-bit pixel style. And you can go to places in the ship that you've never been before. Yeah, it, it looks pretty neat. Uh, you know, don't go to it on uh, Safari on your Mac uh, because you need Flash Player uh, to, to run it. Well, but, you can uh, install it, Flash Player if you really want to play it, but it's not going to be there hey, by default, right? no. Oh, come on. Why would you ruin Safari like that? Come on, man. Does anyone install <laughs> Flash by default anymore? Do any browsers actually have it installed by default? I don't not on Mac anyway, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. That but, was one uh, of the you know, one of the disappointing things about this to me actually was that you needed Flash Player. I wish that they could have found another way to do it. But yeah, Flash you, is still around. I think they would have been able to. Yeah. Um Flash is hanging on. Yeah. But you know, you know what? Just uh, you know, open an incognito window at work or something on your PC, and uh, you know, just go ahead and play around <laughs> for a little bit on your lunch break. That's okay. It's okay. You know, be do it on your work computer. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Warning: recommendations may not lead to uh, job creation <laughs> That's in this right. episode. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, it looks like a lot of fun. It really does. Yeah, they say you can wander around and you can see places like the famous restroom that's on the bridge that's right around the corner from the Observation Lounge, also known as Geordie and Data's PowerPoint Theater. 
There's apparently <laughs> a bathroom right over there that we never saw. And there are other places <laughs> around the ship that you've never seen before, and you can find those. It's it's cool because when I hear about things like the Oculus Rift recreation of the bridge, when we covered that story, I said, the bridge is great, but if I have that, I'm going to want to get in the turbo lift and wander off through the ship and look around and see what else I can find. And so this is a, a fun way to be able to do that. Yeah, I you know, I, I think people should go ahead and give it a try. It, it looks cool. Yeah, so you can control this with your mouse or with the arrows on your keyboard or the famous WASD WISED. Always makes me think of <laughs> WISE and, you know, <laughs> yeah. Wozniak. But anyway, you have different ways to control it. So they do say Pixel Trek is not done yet. It's a work in progress. But if you want to check it out, just go to pixeltrek.com and you'll find it there. It's fun. It's I like seeing all these ways that fans are expressing their love of Star Trek and doing creative projects with it. So cool, cool little thing right here. Yeah, looks great. Well, that's all we have in news for today, John. But before we go into the feature, we're going to be joined by Alice Baker, a first-time guest on The Ready Room and a co-host of the Educating Geeks podcast, along with Daniel Hanlon to talk about the DS9 episode, Rapture, one of my favorites. We'd like to tell everyone about our other sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. Audible is the best source for audiobooks that you'll find anywhere online. They have over 150,000 titles waiting for you right now. New titles, in fact, hundreds of new titles coming out every single week. They have classics, current bestsellers, some of the most famous Star Trek books. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. Each week, we like to recommend a book to you, and it's usually a Star Trek book. But today, John has something else to recommend. John, what do you want people to go pick up at Audible? Well, I decided, uh, you know, there's a book that uh, probably Kirk and Picard could have agreed on and would have loved um, because it's about their favorite author and the world he lived in. It's called Shakespeare, The World as Stage. It's written by Bill Bryson, uh, who also wrote Walk in the Woods uh, in a Sunburned Country. And it's narrated by the author. And I can tell you firsthand that this is a phenomenal book and a phenomenal audiobook. Do yourself a favor. You know, if you're going to go and you're going to sign up for the free trial um, using the Trek FM code, seriously, go grab this book. It's a lot of fun to listen to. It's very educating. And it, you know, honestly, you will walk away understanding why Nick Meyer makes so many Shakespeare references mm. in 2 and 6. So it's always nice to have that context. That's cool. That's a good recommendation because although it's not a Star Trek book, like you say, there is so much Shakespeare in Star Trek. And if you know those references, it really does enrich the experience of watching Star Trek. Because some of the references are very, very obvious, but there's subtle stuff in Star Trek as well that when you when you know it and then you see it go by on the screen, you're like, wow, really clever writers we have here. Yep. So as a Trek FM listener, you can get this book absolutely free or any other book you want to choose from Audible. And the way you do that is to go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up for the trial. If at the end of the trial you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that audiobook. But if you love podcasts, I know you're going to love Audible and you're definitely going to want to stick with them. And every month you'll get great selection and great prices and just by trying Audible, you really are helping us out here at the Ready Room because if just one of you tries Audible, the money that we receive from them for that trial 
almost covers the cost of hosting and distributing the Ready Room for one entire month. So it is a huge help for us. But more than that, you're really going to be enriching your daily life when you commute or you exercise or just cleaning house or working or whatever it is. Audible is a great way for you to read all the books that you never thought you'd have time for. That's what I do. So go check it out. Again, audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for their support of the Ready Room and the network. When we visited Deep Space Nine for the very first time, Picard made it clear to Cisco that his mission was to do everything short of violating the Prime Directive to prepare Bajor for admission into the Federation. It took five seasons, but finally, Bajor's petition was approved. And in the episode Rapture, Bajor was going to join the Federation. Only it didn't happen, because Cisco had a vision as the emissary and set into motion a series of events that really propelled the series forward from here on out to the end. And today we're going to discuss this episode, and to help us do that, we have back with us on the Ready Room, Mr. Daniel Handlin. Hello, Daniel. Thanks for joining us again. Good to be back. And also we have with us for the very first time on the Ready Room, co-host of Educating Geeks podcast, Alice Baker. Hello, Alice. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. So a quick synopsis of this episode for those who haven't seen it in a while. And spoiler alerts here, but again, this was like 20 years ago, so hopefully you've seen it by now. The episode opens with a discussion about the lost city of Bahala on Bajor with Cisco, Kira, and Dax. And it's a great way of leading us into what happens in the episode, which is that Cisco has a vision from the prophet's And he actually finds this lost city that's been lost for about 20,000 years. And it's a way of really cementing in the mind of the Bajorans, as well as in his own mind, that he is the emissary of the prophets, something that he has resisted and that Kai Wen herself has certainly not been happy about and has tried to convince herself isn't true. Alongside this is Bajor's admission into the Federation, which is finally going to happen. As the episode goes on, Cisco uncovers the city, but he almost dies in the process. And we get into medical ethics as well, and them having to pull him out of these visions, which are really starting to damage his brain. We also get into Starfleet's discomfort with his role as the emissary, a religious icon to the Bajorans, and a Starfleet captain. The episode ends with Bajor not entering the Federation, and... Cisco really being propelled forward as the emissary. So that's a quick synopsis of everything that happens in here. And let's just jump into this. As I said, coming to terms with his role as the emissary is probably the key element of this story for me and how it fits in. So, Daniel, I'm going to ask you to begin because when we suggested episodes, and I listed three, and this was one of them, and you said, this is like one of my all-time favorite episodes. Let's do this one. What does rapture mean to you? Well, there are a couple of things that I really like about this episode. Um, uh, I, I think that this episode is sort of quintessential DS9 in the sense that it, it involves a lot of those themes that 
make DS9 unique, the continuing storyline involving religion and some of these big picture questions as part of a bigger story arc. So I think if you like DS9, you'll love this love this episode and vice versa. And for me, you know, being a, a huge DS9 fan, um, I think it sort of embodies those bigger themes better than most episodes do. It really delves into Cisco. Uh, he, he, the way that he, I think this is the episode where he finally fully embraces his role as the emissary to the prophets, and it's a, a turning point for his character. Whereas before, in some of the episodes, like um, the in the third season one with the uh, the poet who thought that he was uh, the emissary and was cast forward in time, I think Cisco there grows more right. comfortable with his role as the emissary, but doesn't really fully embrace it as he does here, and. I think that the involvement of of uh, you know his involvement in scuttling the Bajor accession to the Federation is hugely important for the continuing storyline. And I think what I like most about it is just this idea of understanding everything as as huge and frightening as that is. I think is both really intriguing and I think also played really well by Avery Brooks. Brooks, like you could, you're really he's really convincing that he is on the verge of this great epiphany or or rapture as you might expect and um it just well daniel don't you think you've seen the captains right don't you think that avery brooks always feels like he's right on the verge of some great epiphany i i think the captain version of avery brooks like has already had that (laughs) epiphany because he's just in another plane from the rest of us yep yeah Yeah, right he exists somewhere else mentally exactly and i don't mean that as a pejorative (laughs) i mean that as a very positive thing like i would love to think like avery brooks based on that interview Oh, I think yeah. the real Avery Brooks that I think Rapture was based on some experience he must have actually had. <laughs> Fair. It feels that way, Fair. right? Yeah. Well, Alice, what about you? This episode, it's almost like the anti Star Trek episode because it it's it centers on the Bajoran religion. It's all the things that when when people look at Deep Space Nine and they say, That's not Star Trek, and one thing they always cite is the Bajoran religion. This is one of only a handful of stories that truly does center on the Bajoran religion. What are your thoughts on this episode? I I had I personally had mixed feelings about this episode. I like the exploration of of faith versus science, right? I'm, I love the X Files. I love Fringe. You know, I like a lot of shows where they they juxtapose um, belief versus science, and so as a theme. Uh, I think it, it intrigued me in that way. There are little things about the episode that I find, um, you know, they only have an hour. It's television. They don't have a huge budget. You know, they have limitations. And so they're little, I can nitpick little things about it. Um, but overall, I feel like it's a pretty solid hour uh, of television. And, and rewatching it, Deep Space Nine was not one of the series that I, although I did watch it, I wasn't, I was a next gen g- girl. Um, so I probably have only this is probably only the third time I've ever seen this episode. So it wasn't like it was deeply entrenched in my mind. So it's like watching it fresh for me. Mm-hmm. And overall, I enjoyed it. You mentioned they don't have a big budget. In this episode, they had to blow a lot of the budget in building the actual obelisk, the real one. They wanted <laughs> yeah. to have the originally they only wanted to show a portion of it so that they didn't have to build the whole thing because that was a big budget blow there. But uh, as they said, the answer is in the spire, and you have to actually show the entire thing when they blow through the wall and actually see it in order that the the discovery is grandiose. So, well, that was one of the the little the the 
two of the little nitpicky things that I had that, and again, I don't, I didn't look up the timing, um, but two of the things that I just kind found kind of silly, and it might just be me personally, but um, the the comedic part of Blade Runner where it's, you know, you're talking to the computer and you're saying, pan right, pan right, enhance, enhance, zoom in, enhance, enhance. So there's that scene. And then there's the scene where he's doing Close Encounters of the the Third Kind where he's making the opalisk on his food plate. And, you know, I I will admit I sort of did a couple of eye rolls over a couple of those things. I thought they handled that pretty well. Now, they were clearly doing an homage to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, but they did it in a way that if you know the scene, you immediately think of it. But it wasn't done so literally that he wasn't actually mm-hmm. piling stuff up. He was actually cutting very flat food. And then he arranged it in a way that actually did make perfect sense with the inscriptions on the obelisk. I thought they did a pretty tasteful job of that. Although but, although yeah, one, definitely of, a callback. one of the symbols did uh, kind of look like a smiley face. Like a digitized smiley face, and so it yeah, was very hard for me. I was like, "Oh wow, look, yeah. they're doing a closing." That looked silly, you know. Like it, it sort of <laughs> cuts the drama of the scene just a little bit. Although, a little bit, you yeah. know. For me, I, you know, I love nostalgia. So seeing it play out as that close encounters homage, I dig that stuff. I just, I really like that kind of thing where I'm like, ah, I, I see what you're doing. I see. I mean. If we're going to talk about the obelisk and the creation of that set, the thing that jumped out as silly to me was, wait a minute, you're vaporizing a wall that's been in place for 20,000 years and nothing else moves? Uh, nothing else moves. Yeah. yeah. There's, that's a little strange. Well, I almost got the impression that that there was some sort of, it's like a secret door. Like if you know oh, where okay. to find it, it's designed to blow away like that. I don't know. Uh, oh, no, what see, I thought was kind of odd is that just on the other side of that cave wall, there's this valley and there's this whole city there and no one's ever been able to find it. That was yeah. a little bit odd. With all of the advanced <laughs> technology that they have, it's almost like overlooking a missing right. planet in a star system during Star Trek II. I don't know. <laughs> right. Maybe. <laughs> could be, could be. Well, so this first part here, coming to terms with his destiny, he's getting these visions from an alien god, as it was described by, I believe, Iris Stephen Bear. And one thing that in the Deep Space Nine companion, Ronald D. Moore talks about this, and he says it's a classic example of what not to do. The Starfleet captain who encounters the primitive culture and declares himself a guide. That has to be something they teach Starfleet Academy students in their first year. So certainly when they start hearing that somewhere out on the frontier, Ben Sisko is now being revered as a spokesperson for the prophets, it probably would raise a lot of eyebrows back at headquarters. And I guess this actually plays into something I want to talk about later, religious icon or Starfleet captain. But the the one thing I thought was odd about that is that that's not exactly what's going on here. They haven't encountered a primitive culture. The Bajoran culture is much older and much more advanced than Earth's culture. They are seeing Cisco as a religious icon based on specific, very ancient scriptures it's not so much that Cisco went there and declared himself a god. He doesn't even want to be a god. And so that's what ties in here at the beginning with him coming to terms with his destiny. Well, maybe that in and of itself could almost seem even more disconcerting to Starfleet because so long as Caesar refuses the crown, you have no problem with Caesar. It's when Caesar accepts the crown that you have a problem with him. You know, like it's okay to have the adulation of the people, but as soon as Cisco, like I... 
maybe it's a missed dramatic moment or maybe it's in there are, there are no mistakes in art there are only happy accidents is what a teacher told me one time mm-hmm. and so maybe a happy accident is that this exposes sort of a more almost i guess machiavellian thought process on the part of starfleet where they're willing to accept cisco accepting this role because it gets them what they want, which is Bajor and the wormhole. That's just a thought. Right. And didn't you find it odd that at the end, Admiral Watley is, he says, I'll keep the champagne on ice when Cisco says mm-hmm. one day Bajor will join the Federation. And, but Watley says, if I pull you from this post, then we'll lose Bajor forever. It was, it was kind of odd. Like Starfleet, like we've got to have this planet. It, it mm-hmm. the Federation. We have to have this planet. It almost seemed against the ideals of the Federation. It was almost like a imperialistic type position yeah. that mm-hmm. the Federation is taking towards Bajor. It's the it's the beachhead, right? Mm-hmm. It's the beachhead for the oncoming war with the Dominion. So, right? They they have to. They kind of have to have it at this yeah. point. Yes, but at the point at which they were already wanting Bajor, they hadn't even encountered the Dominion yet. Yeah, I thought it was sort of a little unrealistic at the end given how Cisco scuttled the talks that he the admiral kind of told him like well that's okay just like don't do it again uh, <laughs> yeah, it seems like right. it would be hard to kind of get away with doing don't, something like that don't come running into a meeting raving like a lunatic <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and yeah. spasming on the floor and yelling about locusts again it's okay to happen once I mean we all do it once right <laughs> it kind of reminded me if any of you have seen Pippin where uh, this play where <laughs> The you know, this uh, son of a king like kills his father, and there's like this time loop, and his father just says, "Oh, that's all right, just don't do it again." Yeah, like right. But <laughs> yeah. well, well, but the thing is, that's that's almost like a because that scene at the end, it's almost like just a very poorly placed line, where the admiral should have come in and chewed him out, and said, mm-hmm. "We can't pull you from this post because we'll lose Bajor forever." And I, you know, I'm gonna leave right now because although you know, I want to punch you and you know whatever and and leave, but instead he's like. You know, he's like, you shouldn't have done that. That's terrible, et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, Cisco's like, yeah, well, so, okay, well, I'll come back and talk to you later. It's like, wait, wait, right. you just undercut yourself completely. And it's it's that one single line, you know, I'll keep the champagne on ice. It's like, well, it just undercut everything that came before. Yeah. And I think another point, getting back to um, what you said, Chris, about um, the line of, not declaring yourself to be a god. I think another difference here is besides the fact that, as John mentioned, Cisco doesn't really seek it. I think you could sort of argue within the context of the show that he kind of is a god. So it's not like he's trying to take advantage of his status with the Bajorans. But at least in this episode, it Mm -hmm. seems like he really is getting some sort of greater insight. Um, So I think it's... I find it surprising that... um, he said it was Ronald D. Moore, like being so involved with the show that he would he would say that because I don't really see it see it that way. I I was going to say with the whole, uh, you know, he's getting visions from the alien god. If you're if if I were going to play the skeptic here, right? Would I, if I'm going to be Dax, <laughs> I'm going to be the Dax of the the podcast here. You know, that's he, why you he, have spots on today, right? Exactly. <laughs> um. It's you know he gets he he gets an electrical shock from a piece of equipment that does something to his brain, yeah. Um, right, and so the this uh, immediate acceptance that these visions aren't some 
brain problem. I can't forget what Bashir calls them. He uh, calls them odd synaptic potentials. There you was go. It, yeah, neural depolarization. <laughs> and over and over. It's not like that was the first thing and he didn't know what it was yet. But later on, he tells the Admiral, I thought those odd synaptic potentials would have gone away by now. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, then there's the whole scene with him. Uh, but right there's that research where, you know, people who, who claim to have, have died and I'm not saying yes or no to anything, but, you know, claim who have died and they see yeah. the white light and all of that, that there is definite brain chemistry that happens during those moments. And so this, you know, just acceptance, right? It's a, it's a question of is it faith or is it not faith, you know, and does faith matter? And, you know, that whole exchange between uh, Worf and Kira and yeah. Dax and whoever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, Miles was there, too. Yeah, that 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 scene is great because it's so true to DS9 that they present a bunch of different opinions about faith and science in that one little scene without ever saying who is right and who's wrong or what you should think about the situation. And I very, I very much want to like point out like one of the best lines I think ever written in any Star Trek episode is Worf's, which is what I believe in is faith without it. There can be no victory. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's fantastic because he's sitting there saying in response to Dax, I don't, you know, I, I'm not necessarily subscribing to this as a religion or a faith or anything like that, but you have to believe in something. And like, so it's that, I think it's a very, I think that discussion in and of itself highlights what, and this gets to one of Daniel's points about, you know, whether you love her or dislike the episode is that is really a lot of what Deep Space Nine explored that I think rubs some Star Trek fans wrong is they're not they're not coming at a situation saying only science, only this explanation, only this is happening. Right. It's saying there could be something we don't understand out there and who knows what it is, you know, whether you believe in it or not. And I think that's a really it reminds me of the better moments of Lost, actually, when, you know, Jack and Locke go at each other about everything. And the you know, the whole overarching point of that show of being that like the two can coexist and it's not necessarily a battle between the two of them. I think Deep Space mm-hmm. Nine broke that ground well before Lost ever did. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that um, unlike most Star Trek episodes where the captain goes a little crazy for one reason or another, they never really entertain either Cisco or anyone else that you know he's going crazy or there's some alien mind parasite or anything like that but it's pretty much accepted from the beginning that this is happening and and it's just entirely comes down to whether you have faith in what's going on or not rather than seeking you kind of like um in the first season dramatis personae where they're all taken over by energy beings like no one ever suggests anything like that is going on at all like there's clearly something going on and the only question is whether it, it does reflect some some greater truth or faith yeah. Well, with Cisco, we see with Destiny and then with Accession as well, we see him like taking these steps to to start to believe that he is the emissary. And so when you get to this with him, he actually buys into it. He is having these visions and he somehow he knows that this is what's happening. The prophets are actually in in contact with me. And he wants to see it all the way through. And then even at the end, when he's okay, well, he's upset that the visions are gone. But when he tells Watley, too, that 
like I may have been acting crazy, but I really believe everything I said, and I continue to believe it now, shows that even when this is over, he he knows this was something that was given to him, and it's part of who he is. This episode reads a bit differently when you watch it now, after you've been all the way to the end of the series, because it, at this point in time, the writers say that they did know what they were doing with Cisco here, and they did know what they were setting up and what they were seeding. But prior to this, they didn't necessarily know exactly where they were going to take Cisco. And when you see it now, it's easy to watch it and understand exactly what's happening. And there's no question in your mind as the viewer that Cisco is half profit and this charge has done something to his brain. But what's happening is that that half of him that is profit is being released and he has gained access to, to these insights and to this view of nonlinear time, which we'll talk about here next. But when you watched it the very first time when it aired in first run, you didn't know any of that yet. So you could watch it and kind of think, well, this is kind of an odd thing to be happening to a Starfleet captain. And maybe there is something else going on here other than the connection of the prophets. I think you could almost make the argument that this is the beginning of the end of the show, not in the sense like, oh, it jumped the shark. It's the beginning of the end, but in the sense that like, when you look at the story arc that Cisco overgoes uh, goes through throughout the length of the show, um, I think this is the first episode that really is like absolutely vital for establishing what happens in that like final ten episode arc. Definitely, because without this, you don't have all that evolution with the the prophets and the pirates that occurs later. So I think this is kind of the beginning of the transition to that broader story arc with the Dominion and the Prophets that, that finally culminates in the finale. And I think it would be really hard to, if you like watch the entire series but skip this episode, I, I think you'd kind of be missing a lot for the, the whole oh, yeah. arc of the show. Well, related to that with Wynn as well, Wynn tells Kira, before Captain Sisko found Bahala, my path was clear. Mm-hmm. I knew who my enemies were, but now nothing is certain. So even... For her, and I got, we're going to talk about when a little bit more later, but it also sets into motion. Yeah, like you say, everything all the way to the end. So this is definitely a key. Well, let's talk about nonlinear time a little bit, because I think that's what really got Kira believing in what was going on here. Sometimes you feel like Kira is always just waiting for an opportunity to say, oh, my God, Cisco is having a vision, right? So it kind of reconfirms everything. But at this point in the series, we're in the fifth season, and it is her relationship with Cisco that has brought her around to seeing that her faith can coexist with Bajor as a Federation world as well. And she realizes right away when Cisco tells her the things that he saw and that she realizes he's having a view of nonlinear time works perfectly. What did you think about him having these visions of the past and the future here? I, I really liked it. Um, I think it's it's a really cool science fiction idea, and I think Avery Brooks's performance really effectively delivers this idea that he's this man who's really on the verge of understanding everything, which just seems like such a, a huge and and frightening idea. Um, so I I thought it was it came across really well, and also like if you compare it with like how how Cisco was baffled by everything that was going on in Emissary, I think here he as part of what we were talking about before with the transformation of his character, he really understands it and he's embracing this idea of, of nonlinear time, which again, like it's, it's hard 
because we can now look back uh, in hindsight and see what happened to him later, but it is sort of the beginning of what he, he finally ends up doing uh, with the prophets at the end of the show. I like what you said there. He feels like he's on the verge of understanding everything. Do you sometimes feel like Avery Brooks is Dwight Schultz from the nth degree, but without the big brain contraption? <laughs> he's like that in real life. He's just about to make these amazing breakthroughs for mankind. <laughs> I think the difference is that is that Barkley in the nth degree really did understand everything. I, right. I, I have to say there's that, that scene where he's, they're having dinner. Jake has made him dinner. And he, he's giving that speech about holding Jake in his hands. And in that moment, mm-hmm. it's like this beautiful speech. You know, uh, he could see his past, his present and his future. And it was like such a touchy move. I'm a single mom. You know, I was like almost in tears because, you know, I'm that age. And uh, and then he goes like all, I don't know, crazy, you know, and he's like holding the world and he's like talking about the world. And I, I really did have a moment where I was like, woohoo. He's like over the edge here. Oh my God. He's lost it. Um, but, but that said, I agree with you guys that I think he, he, he puts on a really great performance here in terms of that struggle. But I also am very much colored by having seen the captains and sort of wondering yeah. how much acting he's really doing and, and how much that he's just playing himself. Well, that's why I think no one but Avery Brooks could play Cisco because so much of what makes Cisco what he is and what makes him so great. I think isn't acting. It's Avery's eccentric personality coming through right there. You mentioned that scene, Alice. So since we're on that, I'm just going to mention this now. Yes, he's talking about Jake and he says, you know, like I'm holding him and it's like, this is the whole universe. And the scene, same for me, it's so touching. And, and I get the same thing there. And then Cassidy comes in and she says, look at the face of your son right now. And it ruins the whole scene for me. And I'm watching this scene. I've always had this memory of this particular episode where I think sometimes Penny Johnson and Strzok Lofton don't quite bring it to the the script at, at moments. But most of the time they're okay. And so when I got to it this time, I watched it again. I said, okay, I'm going to watch this. I haven't watched this episode in a while. Maybe I'll feel differently now. And the little bits there with Cassidy and Jake up to that, I'm like, okay, this isn't as bad as I remember. And then that comes in. I'm like, nope, there it is. Mm -hmm. And then when Cisco's going to leave with Wynn and Jake says, you trust her since when? I'm like, yep, that's it. What's going on here? That whole... The the acting there just doesn't work in this episode. Well, I, I think the the acting what was off in that scene. It was off in a couple of scenes, and um, but I you know you could say it's because Avery Brooks was so in the moment in the groove. He was so good. Was like so how do you good play against yeah. that? Right. Yeah. But I think that Cassidy is extraneous in that scene. Um, okay. In a lot of scenes that she's Alice in. wants to talk about this. Yeah. I and. Uh, you know, there's even there's like it even feels weird when Jake first mention, mentions her coming back because he says, you know, he specifically says Cassidy Yates. It's like, what? Why are you using her full formal name? Like, OK, I get it. Maybe the character hasn't been seen in a while, but really like it just it just felt odd. And it's so, I think it's well, sort he's of been says, around his dad so much. Cassidy Yates. Right. Yeah. It, Yates. Yeah, it it just it sets that tone, I think. Yeah. And I think that she winds up unfortunately uh almost through no fault of her own. Like it feels like they could have streamlined that part and a couple of other parts 
of the episode to better mm-hmm. serve the A plot yeah. as opposed to creating this. Oh, wait, hey, Cassidy's back. And I think they brought her in simply for that moment at the end where Cisco adds her hand so that there are, you know, mm-hmm. a whole family again. Oh, hey, this is, you know, this is your new mom. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, like that Alice felt, is making gagging gestures yeah. at the screen right now. It just felt forced. <laughs> and I, Alice, I, I, I have a feeling you have feelings about this as well. I do. I feel so, so much the same way. I just feel like she was, she, she was unnecessary really for the whole thing. I mean, I can get using her uh, if they're not going to give Jake his own agency to, to draw his father back or to attempt to draw his father back um, without having the medical ethics thing come in where he, he he's forced to make a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's supporting him in, in trying to get the, the captain back. I mean, I, I guess I can see that, but she really feels so unnecessary most of the time. And I would agree that the quality of the actress's acting is, is not so awesome against the other performances that are going on in the show. I really just could have... Um, done without her entirely. I don't think that Penny Johnson is a bad actress and she's okay most of the time. There's something about this particular scene that Mm -hmm. just never worked for me. Now, there are other moments in the series where I feel that way about her as well, but most of the time she's fine. I mean, she's not... She's not the same type of actor as Avery Brooks in the first place, so their styles don't necessarily mesh as well together, but yeah, just this one. I think part of the problem was, I agree that I think both um, Cassidy and Jake are kind of off compared to how awesome Avery Avery Brooks is in the scene, and that's definitely part of the problem. And I think another part of it for me is that I don't think that they really kind of effectively deliver an argument against what Cisco is saying. Like, I think you could make a strong argument, like, in favor of family over what he's going through. But just maybe it's more just the writing here, but, you know, you have Cisco clearly going through this epiphany like i'm about to understand the whole universe and they're just like yeah but what about me and it it just doesn't really (laughs) ring true for me and i think it it probably is just a writing thing and it it could have been done better because it just i i don't think there's how at least the way they presented their argument just doesn't really seem to hold up against you know what cisco's about to understand the whole universe that seems more important i i think that's a great point is the emotional resonance necessary because it is an effective counter argument if it's delivered well to to yeah. sit there and have your child say to you, hey, I'm important, too. You know, I need you here with me and that sort of thing. And then it just isn't delivered well. It isn't. It, you know, maybe there wasn't enough oomph. Maybe it is the lines themselves, the way they, that the scenes were constructed. So maybe it's just remove Cassidy and give Jake and. And, you know, Cisco, more of an, a direct interaction of the child appealing to the parent. Maybe that well, would work better. They give him the moment in the infirmary later when we're dealing with the medical ethics mm-hmm. issues where and he does. And that scene works pretty and well. And that scene works better where he's just mm-hmm. saying, I'm not strong enough to let you go. Right. I, I'm making the choice because I'm selfish and I'm not strong enough to let you go and, and give you what you want. Yeah, that scene works really well for me because it's just Jake and he's already lost his mother and he mm-hmm. might lose his father. And then I'm picturing how tall Sirach Lofton is at this point and remembering how he was when they arrived on the station at Emissary. So I'm thinking about this boy has grown up here on this station that's so far away from his home. 
where he originally his home and he's lost his mother and then he might lose his father. And I've also lost my father as well in real life. And so that connects with me in that scene. So it is maybe just bringing Cassidy in. It was, especially since she just arrived back, Mm -hmm. there wasn't that connection there. When she makes her arguments to Cisco at the end of the series, when he's going to go, that's different because they've been together for that point. And then they're actually being married then. So what could possibly have been, why did they feel the need to introduce her into this episode and try to force this? Because it, 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 them reconnecting is too important a point to have just be sort of like those those lines, those add-on lines. Yeah. I, I would be fascinated to talk to one of the writers um, and find... Why not bring her back in the next episode? Right. right? Reference her yeah. in this one. And then, you know, at the next episode is you have an aftermath episode where, where Cisco talks about how he's conflicted and he understands why Jake did it. Like, and of course, you know, you can play, you know, Monday morning quarterback, you know, until you're blue in the face. Mm-hmm. But it, it just, I, I would love to find out the thinking on it. So maybe just have Jake say, oh, did you hear? Mm-hmm. Kira, she told me that Ops received a message from the ship of Cassidy Yates. <laughs> <laughs> it must be delivered just like that. Yes. We need Michael Fisher here. He does the best <laughs> Avery Brooks, Cassidy Yates voice. <laughs> I could kind of see having Cassidy work just in the sense that Sisso is undergoing this huge character moment. He's trying to decide sort of whether to keep living or go into some higher plane of existence. So I, I see why you might want Cassidy there since she's important to his life. But as we've been discussing, I don't think she really works the way that she's used. And you yeah. can really easily, you know, I, I think if you look at something like The Visitor, I think the scene there between Jake and Kira where they're in like the docking pylon is one of the strongest of the series. And I think you could have... Yeah really easily just with Jake, you know, made this you know, clearly illustrated what the, the choice that Cisco faced. So I don't, I don't necessarily think it was bad to use Cassidy here, but I think it just wasn't executed that well. And for Jake also. Yeah. Agreed. Well, to bring it back around here, talking about Cisco's journey to being the emissary and uh, seeing the events in nonlinear time, you know, the vision of the locusts, is is a huge thing because he actually is seeing the future of what's going to come up in the series, but it ties into this prophecy within the Bajoran religion. And of course, it's an obvious biblical reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were also going to do a story, they say, of actually having these space locusts come to Bajor. So when they mention that in here, it's not just a biblical reference. They said they never did it because they couldn't figure out a way to do it where it wouldn't just come off as being silly or cheesy. And so I really applaud the DS9 writers there for their restraint of having an idea that they really wanted to do and just saying, look, we're not going to be able to do this in a way that's going to work for the audience. So let's just not do it. And that that was great. The idea there was that the locusts would swarm Bajor and kill everyone and the Bajorans were just going to sit by and let it happen because it was part of their prophecies and so it had to happen but instead it turns out that well the locusts are going to Cardassia and it foreshadows the Dominion and their alliance with Cardassia and then ultimately the destruction of Cardassia I also find it interesting that the Jim'Hadar ships kind of have an insectoid look to them a little bit so if you think of 
locusts mm. swarming Cardassia in that way as well. Yeah, if you I, like glowing purple insects. Uh, who doesn't, really? Yeah, I, I used to see it as a foreshadowing of the Dominion War, but when watching it again for this, I, I noticed that Cisco said that he saw these locusts when he was standing in the rebuilt city of Bahala, which would seem uh-huh. to put it much farther in the future. So that was a little odd, and I'd kind of forgotten about that detail. But that's just true. a general concept. Yeah. I think it works pretty well, and you can ignore that little bit. Well, you know, I mean, you know, timelines get a little wishy-washy when you're dealing with prophecies. And yeah, you know, give and take a couple of thousand years. Especially when all that 20,000-year-old residue hasn't settled yet after you've blown a hole in the wall. <laughs> That's a lot of sediment, Chris. If you have synaptic potentials going on, you just never know. That's right. (laughs) Hey, your neural pathways may be depolarizing. You never know. (laughs) That's right. You never know. I feel like that's happening to me often (laughs) these days. Monday mornings. So this vision, though, helps convince Wynne that he's the emissary. And this episode's interesting when it comes to Wynne because we see a different Wynne than we see up to this point and that we see later because it's very clear from the Circle Trilogy when we really are first getting to know when, especially when we find out that she's going to be installed as the Kai, ultimately, that she's not a woman of faith, that she doesn't actually believe in the Bajoran religion and that she's just in this for her own power. But here... But then she fights against Cisco as being the emissary, perhaps because if people latch on to him as the emissary, that's going to interfere with her plans. And she doesn't want the competition, I guess, as the leader of the religion. But in this episode, she actually seems to become convinced because of his visions. And she calls him emissary. And even when he comes in she, to the, the little meeting at the end, she's like, emissary, tell me emissary. And just hearing her call him emissary in this episode is surprising because she so often is opposed to him as being in that position. But I think that you could almost look at it from the sense that um, there, there's almost a commentary or not even a commentary, but uh, another biblical sort of illusion because you have the locusts and and all of those sorts of things that she's in sort of that um since cisco is in that you know savior figure she's in the established religion figure so because she does have that moment with kira where she says the only Mm -hmm. thing i had to keep me going was faith in those prison camps while you were fighting and that was Mm -hmm. just as brave as you going out and fighting with everybody whereas you know, as she gets older, you know, she gets more entrenched in her power and she gets more accustomed to the political machinations of her religion, as opposed to then she encounters, you know, a real moment of faith. And like, she sort of snaps back at the end of this episode where Mm -hmm. she says, Oh, it's almost like she, she, she almost has this epiphany that Cisco is the real deal. Right, But then when he gets pulled back, she realizes, nope, this is going to be my opportunity. And to, you know, continue figuring out the the political side of everything. And mm-hmm. I read the scene with the orb of prophecy as her, she, you know, it, she says, you know, hey, it's really dangerous. It could, you know, mess you up. It messes up people who are in perfect health. And then she walk, you know, she wraps up the conversation and walks out of the room and it's almost like she's not testing him, but 
almost kind of hoping, like I think the scene is really well played because you can almost pick up the subtext of her hoping the Orb of Prophecy taxes him too much, where she's throwing this thing at him that should knock him out and, you know, Mm -hmm. prove her cynicism as opposed to proving a faith or anything like that. At least, I mean, you know, that's the way I read the scene. That's a great point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. I think, you know, I think Wynn is a great character, really well acted, but she does often come off as a little bit one-dimensionally evil to me. So I, I like at least the idea that she might have some good qualities buried in her somewhere, so I'm a little disappointed they didn't follow up that thread later. But, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about what, what John mentions, but it is an, an interesting point uh, that, that even even here she does retain some of those those qualities that we've seen in her before. Yeah, for me, my favorite scene with Wynn is the is the scene that um, John references when he's t- talking to Kira that really has, I think, for me anyway, has less to do with the whole Cisco emissary situation. And it's just a very frank conversation about the cost of war and, and the two of them discussing, you know, you think your sacrifice is so much more than my sacrifice when in fact and sort of gives the, the counter argument and that, that although in that moment it felt a little bit separated from what the rest of the the episode was about. I actually really, really enjoyed that scene between the two of them. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I think maybe it felt separated from the rest of the episode, but it didn't feel separated from the overall story of DS9 True. and the relationship between Kira and Wynn. That's what I love about DS9 is that you have those moments in different episodes that in isolation they do feel disjointed from the story, but as a as a niner and you're watching the whole the whole series it it still connects with you really well and here it actually does make you feel sympathy sort of for when a little bit that i mean you can picture her in the prison camps and the beatings and her holding on to her faith and i just said that she's not a believer but then when she says that you feel like well maybe maybe she was a believer or, or maybe something as a result of that led her to distort her beliefs later on for her own power. But actually, John, I like what you said, that she feels like the the established, entrenched religion, which you see today in some of the older churches on earth, where so many people in the leadership roles of those churches seem to have completely lost sight of what the faith is about. And they do become just another governmental bureaucracy but they're wearing robes instead Mm -hmm. of suits well and to me win is very much a pragmatist or that's how Mm -hmm. she reads to me and so in in that moment when she's when she's talking about faith faith doesn't have to be faith in a higher being it doesn't have to be faith in a religious text faith can be a faith in human behavior faith can be you know so for, for me it wasn't necessarily a strong reference to her saying i believe in the bajoran faith deeply and in my soul but that she was relying on faith as opposed to whatever else it might be my own willpower (laughs) to get me through those difficult times that's a good point it's a bit of a tough juxtaposition for me like i really like the scene between uh kira and kaiwin that we've been discussing and I, i think it does illustrate some interesting depth to her character but given what we do see with her at the end of the finale it's, it's sort of hard for me to square both of those things being true with her just sort of total lack of faith and just the power later and i guess you can see it as a 
a big character change, but it's it's just strange that they seem to be so at odds with each other. Those those two different versions of Win that we get. But I, uh, you know, it, I think everybody sort of hit on this where it's it is a different picture than what we usually get of Win through the series. But that I think is really the strength of Deep Space Nine as a whole is that real people have contradictions. Real people have lines and beliefs that you wait, uh, you know, like if you look at it at first glance, you really have to get to know the person to understand where they're coming from. And I think that scene serves very much to explaining where Wynn is coming from, where even if you want to look at her and say, you know, she's not subscribing to faith in the Bajoran religion, but faith in her own willpower. Well, that serves into her belief that she's going to get to the top of the bureaucratic heap of this, you know, theocratic government. You know, like it adds people have layers, people have dimensions to them. And I think that Deep Space Nine takes great care to giving those dimensions to even the ancillary characters. Right. I, I, and I think that this is a step toward not treating Win as a uh, as a one dimensional evil character. Like mm-hmm. this one scene alone, so long as you're watching the whole series, you can f- fall back on that and say, "Well, wait a minute. Okay, so in the context of that, what does this mean?" And Worf has his own Klingon religion, but he's willing to work together with based on the concept of faith, and you know. I think it just it's it's almost like the any flaws I would point out in the episode call out the strengths as well, which is that mm-hmm. it acknowledges that people themselves and life itself is very complex and very disjointed and things don't necessarily happen in a specific or ordered fashion. And right. so this episode has those aspects to it. And that complexity highlights why Quark has a welcome Klingons <laughs> <Yeah>. banner ready. <laughs> Just in case Bajor joins the Klingon Empire. One of my favorite. You never moments. know. Yeah. <laughs> I love Quark. I'm always yep. happy when Quark is on screen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love the fact that uh, uh, Odo is willing to bring him in and be like, what? we knew the holodecks were out of shape. I was just looking for an excuse to bring you in on this. It's like, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. like Odo has a file of things so, where if he was truly caring about law and order, he would have brought in Odo. Right. And killed him. <laughs> Long like time ages ago. Ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so much fun to watch. But you make a really good point, John. I think that the thing with Wynn here is that they could have visited this aspect of her character a few more times because they just rarely go there. Whereas with someone like Dukat, who also becomes a two-dimensional villain at the end of the series, there are a lot more moments with him where we can feel the complexity of him as a character and you can sympathize with him at times. At times you can feel like maybe he's not such an evil person after all. They flesh him out a little little bit more. But with Wynn, there are so few moments like that that I definitely understand how you can see her as being a fairly um, one-dimensional villain a lot of the time. Yeah, I think with Dukat, you can kind of see, 
even with the person he becomes at the end of the show, you can see it as the evolution of all these things and his personality eventually sort of the, the evil parts win out like you see with Waltz and you can understand how he gets there with the, you know, seeing his daughter get killed and losing his empire and so forth. Yeah. But with this, I think it does seem a little out of place given the total evolution of the character and it does seem more like a, a thread that the writers kind of tried out and then later they just said like, yeah, actually let's not do that. Um, yeah, so it's good it's to different. be. Well, let's move on and talk a little bit more about something we've already talked about. And this is religious icon or Starfleet captain and the fact that Starfleet's always been uncomfortable with Cisco's role in the Bajoran religion. But here they really call it out. We have a lot of conversations about it between Captain Cisco and Admiral I Cannot Act. <laughs> and I don't think that was his technical name in the script there. That wasn't his so technical either. name? I don't, I oh, don't that's right. So. He was Charlie. That's right. No. <laughs> So this is Admiral Watley, and he comes in to say something that, you know, has been there all along. But because of the distance between Starfleet Command and Bajor, much like Deep Space Nine as a series, Cisco was just kind of left on his own to do his thing most of the time. So Admiral Watley and Starfleet Command is kind of like UPN and Voyager, <laughs> whereas they've got their official stuff going on over there. And then Cisco is like Deep Space Nine, the series. You just do whatever you want over there, and we're going to leave you alone most of the time. But we might come check on you now and then just to make sure you haven't done anything completely crazy like putting a lounge singer on the show. <laughs> so <laughs> I say that because they always say that when they put Vic Fontaine on in the studio, didn't say anything, they knew they could do whatever the hell they wanted to do on the show. <laughs> So there's a lot of there's a great conversation here, which for me is weakened by the fact that uh, the actor Ernest Perry Jr., who's playing Admiral Watley, I'm not saying that he's a bad actor. I, I'm actually not very familiar with him, so it's not about him as a person, but it's about admirals in Star Trek in general that they seem to just either not find the best people to play admirals. Or they hand them the script right before the cameras roll and they say, read what's on this page because it's just the gravitas, the emotion and all is just typically not there. And, and, and Avery Brooks brought it in this episode so well that this back and forth where there's something there that could have really enhanced the story further if Admiral Watley had been able to uh, carry his side of the conversation better. But the conversation itself, anyway, is very interesting. The growing discomfort between you're here as a Starfleet captain, you need to follow protocol. I'm coming to the station, you should be there to meet me, and you're here to get Bajor into the Federation. But instead, you're down here playing God, finding this ancient city, and the Bajorans now, if they didn't think you were a god before, now they certainly do. You've got to choose here which one are you. I was a little frustrated by it. Kind of reminded me like how in twenty four, like Jack Bauer is right about everything all the time, but no one ever believes him. And like this <laughs> right. is not the first time that Cisco has had some sort of prophet vision or encounter, and he's always been right in the past. And here, clearly, he's seeing things that are happening and are true. Like I guess getting back to what you were saying, Chris, about the the acting of the admirals. Like one scene that just totally is almost kind of ruined for me by that is. 
um, in that, which is otherwise a great scene where Cisco's going through the promenade and sort of giving people prophecies or advice. And he goes up yeah. to the Admiral, he tells him all this stuff about his son that he had no way of knowing. And the Admiral's like, well, how did he know that? That's weird. And it's, it's so out of, out of place. And, um, wait, Daniel, I, I, you said that with too much emotion. It's yeah. supposed to be, yeah. how did he know that? That's weird. Yeah. It, it really was more like that. And it just, you know, I, I get I get the idea that you know we don't believe that they're gods. There must be a scientific explanation. But like even even Dax in that that scene that we were talking about earlier in Ops, like I, I I see how you can approach it that way. But there's clearly something that is happening that is you know contains elements of fact that we've seen before, and it, it seems almost like the, the Starfleet personnel are kind of willfully closing their eyes to what's happening. I, I find it a little yeah strange. Well, but I mean, I would say two things. One, I would say if you're going to come in as an admiral for like a one-off episode, like I don't know how many episodes this guy is in here. I do think people are somewhat hindered by the notion of what they think an admiral should behave like as being very stiff and formal and all of that kind of stuff. And I do agree with you that his performance is against Cisco's, especially is a little bit flat. But in terms of, you know, if I being born and raised a skeptic were were faced with someone who were who was showing me or presenting me uh, evidence that I was having a hard time being skeptical about, it would be hard for me. And I would still. I would say things like, well, you know, there's got to be, you know, well, what about those synaptic potentials? You know, I mean, I would be looking Mm -hmm. for something to support my need to support my currently existing belief system, if I can call if I can call it that. Um, So I didn't find it that surprising as they were trying to represent, as John was saying earlier, these these various, you know, opposing opinions or different ways in which you could look at a situation. That part of it didn't. Uh, it didn't ring untrue for me anyway, personally. For me, I, I, I think that uh, I'm not going to fault the actor because, like you said, they, they grabbed somebody and they said, here's a couple of pages. Deliver this. We need you for two days. Yeah, it feels like that. And the guy was like, oh, hey, I'm on a, I'm on a Star Trek show. Cool. But like, so I'm not going to fault the actor, but I, I will fault the writers for not giving him something more. I mean, to speak to the, the skeptic point, to have him walk through and see Cisco delivering those uh, bits of prophecy to, you know, the the people on the promenade, and then come up and say, "Your son forgives you," and walk off. It seems like there could have been better lines for him than the very, very predictable. How does he know that my son is having problems with me? Give him something more to say. Like, w- wait a minute, this hold up, everybody. If I were writing it. I actually would have given him no lines and I would just have him kind of right. look at Cisco as he's going into the infirmary and through his expressions convey that maybe something's being triggered there. That would have been more effective. Okay, I agree I, entirely. I'll give you that. Yeah. I'll give you that. Absolutely. Because, yeah. I mean, what's the alternative? If you're, if you're not going to do what, what Chris just suggested, I mean, what's he going to do? Get down on his knees and say, oh, emissary, I'm with you now. I mean, <laughs> right, that's right. not really going to work either, right? So Allow me to, to ride my flaming chariot back to Starfleet and spread the word of the Bajoran <laughs> prophets for right. you. Now, John, how, do you have a copy of the script? Because his, his, the Admiral ship actually was named the USS Flaming Chariot. How did you know that? They didn't mention it on screen. <laughs> no, actually what happened was I got electrocuted by my computer shortly before. Beforehand. Oh, and my synaptic okay. potentials let me see that. 
Yes. <laughs> Damn those synaptic because, potentials. <laughs> really, if you're that much of a skeptic as Admiral Watley was, that moment, and, and I think that actually is an effective scene, at least to drive home the point that we've got this captain out here who is basically a god to these people. It's effective for that. But if you're a skeptic like Admiral Watley, you're not suddenly going to believe that it's true just because Cisco makes a comment about your relationship with your son. But it might make you think, hmm, you just give him a look. But then you are going, it's going to take you time. And then he might go back after he goes back to the USS Flaming Chariot and he goes back to San Francisco or wherever he's stationed. He might be thinking about it and over time, Starfleet starts to understand Cisco's role there. So yeah, I don't expect any kind of like instant trigger of, wow, he is the emissary. Right. <laughs> he is the Cuisinart Hatteract, or whatever the <laughs> word is. In a way you can, this episode almost becomes like Avery Brooks versus the world or versus the universe, because I think what we've been discussing or seem to all agree on is that Avery Brooks is doing a really great job, but a lot of the supporting actors are just not kind of measuring up to him and, and a lot of it, or at least some of it, I think, does come to the writers, like, you know, putting a line like that for Admiral Wat- Watley. So it's almost like they're writing him all this great material, but but nobody else. It's uh, it's, it's an interesting juxtaposition. But, you know, I yeah. think getting back to what you were saying, Chris, like, yeah, I, I agree. I think saying nothing would have worked better. And while it might sort of take time for these things to hit home, um, for someone like Admiral Watley, I, I think there there could have been some almost any other way it could have been written uh, probably would have been more effective or kind of gotten that point across better than they ultimately did. It's too bad they used Tony Todd in The Visitor because if Tony Todd had played Admiral Watley, imagine what this episode would have been like. Yeah, that might have been bad. That dynamic, that weight to the position of Starfleet being delivered to Cisco would have been a, a completely different argument. Sure. No, the person who got all the good stuff in here, other than Avery Brooks, was, of course, Armin Shimmerman with lines like, I have a wide assortment of pleasure mazes, and they all come with a <laughs> with surprise, surprise in the center. In the center. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I do like yes. that line. Yes. As I said, I'm always happy when Quark is on. <laughs> I also like Odo's line when they were trying to figure out, like, the seating for the admirals and Kira says something <laughs> yes. like, you know, what about the city of Bahala? And he says, like, well, I hope it helps me find where to put uh, Captain Rifkin. <laughs> yeah. I don't know about all you guys. But I've been watching Vikings. I don't know if you guys watch Vikings, but I couldn't, I couldn't, the whole Valhalla, Valhalla oh. connection, oh, yeah, I yeah, couldn't, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> you know well, that, that has that we... always, um, that has always struck me with the name of the city. I mean, I, I don't know, I guess I should know this. I don't know for sure if that was the inspiration for it, but I've always taken it as being the inspiration that it would be. Yeah, you, Valhalla, no, yeah. you know that that was somebody jacked up on Mountain Dew at three o'clock in the morning with a script <laughs> deadline saying, uh, Valhalla. <laughs> Bahala Done. and um, put an apostrophe in there sound, somewhere. It sounds too much like Norse mythology. Would you put an apostrophe it does. in it? You know, yep. it'll be, it does. Yeah, it'll work. You know, if you put or an apostrophe as, in it, it's alien. Yeah, and or put, it, put a Watley capital says. letter somewhere in the middle so that it just right. looks weird. <laughs> or as Admiral Watley calls it, Bala. <laughs> Bala. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. Oh yeah, Admiral Watley. He's like your he's like your grandmother who can't pronounce brand names like my <laughs> grandmother used to call Nike Nikki's. <laughs> so yeah, well, I, uh, I'll right. give you my embarrassing one, which was there's a product uh, that was called nose coat that you were supposed to put on your nose, 
Yeah. And me being too full of myself would pronounce it Nos Cote. <laughs> oh wow well, it's much fancier i mean they they you probably the charged you twice the regular right. price for it when you took it to the cash <laughs> yeah. register too <laughs> all right well we've been talking close to an hour here so why don't we wrap up with our final thoughts and our ratings so daniel what are your final thoughts on the episode here um i guess we've been talking a lot about the downsides of this episode but Ultimately, I, I do really enjoy it. And as, a, as we mentioned in the beginning, this is one of my favorite episodes because to me, it just does come back. You know, while we've been kind of focusing on a lot of the side characters, it is an episode about Captain Sisko and it's done so well. Um, and the idea is, is so intriguing of understanding everything. And um, it's just a huge turning point for Bejor, for Sisko. And as we were discussing, kind of the, the beginning of that huge arc that ends the series. So. Um, I know we've been kind of nitpicking on some things that might be kind of humorous, but to, for me, it works as science fiction. It works as an episode of Deep Space Nine. And, and um, like I mentioned earlier, I think it's an episode that could only be done in DS9. This would never work in, in Save Voyager or Enterprise. Definitely. So you know, I, I really enjoy this episode. It is one of my favorites at Deep Space Nine. And I'm going to give it 10 out of 10 Starfleet captains spazzing on the floor screaming about locusts. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent, excellent. How about you, John? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I think it, I think I said this earlier, but for me, it boils down to it, everything that it might be considered a weakness of the episode is also a strength. That it's complex, it's too big for itself, and it there's so much going on, just like real life. There, you know, there are so many people that stand to lose or gain from any given moment or realization that you know it's it's just it can be a mess but it can be a beautiful mess that you can take a lot away from and so i am going to rate this uh nine flying bicycle wheels in the middle of space out of ten excellent wow How about you alice <laughs> a guy now all i'm thinking about is well what, what clever thing am i going to call my rating system um <laughs> Uh, this is the ready room where the ratings don't matter and yeah. no one can figure out what the scale is. So. Yep. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so I, I I enjoyed this episode quite a bit for a lot of the reasons people have already mentioned. I, as I said at the beginning, I really enjoy stories that, that deal with, you know, faith versus skepticism and, and what that looks like and what it's all about. So I really enjoyed that, but there were other things that, that hindered me in rating it as high as you guys, or maybe I'm just... Maybe I'm just a hard raider. I don't know. But I'm going to give it <laughs> seven fancy closures on Quark's jackets out of ten. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, wow. Harsh. Interesting rating right there. <laughs> well, Daniel, you said something in your final thoughts that, that struck me as you were talking and that maybe we did kind of dwell on some negative points a little bit more than I realized that we were doing. Because actually, for me, this is one of my favorite episodes of all of Star Trek and of Deep Space Nine. I think this is a, a fantastic episode. And the places that they go and the discussions that they have about faith and the the balance between Starfleet and the Bajorans and what's going on with Cisco as a captain and as the emissary and just the insights that we get into when as well, the way we see Kira come around. There's so many things in this episode that work so well for me. And I have a couple of nitpicks 
about the acting primarily, but they're little things. And I mainly mention them because I think that this episode could be even more powerful if those things uh, weren't quite there. But this is, it is an episode that you couldn't show it to someone who doesn't know the whole DS9 story in isolation and expect them to say, wow, that was a great episode. They're going to be thinking, well, that was a weird episode. (laughs) Wait, this is Star Trek? I thought there wasn't any religion in the future and this and that. But within the context of Deep Space Nine, it's the linchpin for the rest of the series. It's the first time that we see the first contact uniforms on Deep Space Nine, which they had ready to go for a while and they couldn't use them until they knew that the episode would air after the movie premiered. And this is the first episode of DS9 that aired after First Contact premiered in the theaters. And that visual change alone is important for me because those uniforms fit the tone of DS9 so much better than the previous ones. And when I think about DS9, it's always that. And so there's so much in this episode that I love. So I hope that we didn't come across as too nitpicky or down on the episode. Today. Well, you guys, but I was yeah. surprised. To me, seven out of ten is not a bad rating. So I think I'm it's just not a, a bad rating. Gosh I'm darn like it, a- Alice! It is not good enough to rate an episode about the emissary. That is just crazy talk. Come on. Although I will, I will give. I, I'd forgotten about how much I love the opening music for DS Nine. Oh, isn't it? It is so good. Yeah. You know, I, just a, a quick. A quick aside, just a really quick aside, is when my first daughter was very, very young, Deep Space Nine was on, uh, and th- this is an honor Father's Day, I-, I would take a half day off of work and I would pick her up and Deep Space Nine was on syndication and she would fall asleep on my chest to the Deep Space Nine theme song. Aww. So there was a very special connection Aww. to that theme song That's for cute. me. <laughs> Even the season four onward theme song with the driving bass line? Yeah. You know, it, it, oh, wow. there's always going to be a, a a very special emotional connection. And uh, she is showing the signs of budding into a little geek. So awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's sweet. So, so yeah, I love this episode. One of my favorites. So hopefully uh, no one got the wrong impression there. And it's an episode that I actually could, we could do like a three hour ready room. I could just keep talking about those. There's all kinds of points that I didn't, um, even touch on that I want to talk about here, but that's why we have the orb. So if you love DS9, make sure you join Matthew and me and Daniel joined recently on the orb to talk about that. So my rating for this episode, I'm actually going to best quark and I'm going to give this episode nine times the volume in root beer alone. (laughs) All right. Well, Daniel and Alice, thanks so much for joining us today. Before we go, Daniel, tell everyone where they can find you around the interwebs. Uh, Well, Chris, people can find me at, uh, you can email me at danielhandlin at gmail.com and talk about Star Trek or anything else you're thinking about. And uh, you can also find me uh, here on the network on uh, other episodes of The Ready Room. And uh, as you just mentioned, I was guest on the orb recently. And if you visit Vasquez Rocks, you will see Daniel reenacting his favorite TOS scenes on the weekends. Yeah, I live about 15 minutes from Vasquez Rocks. I actually just drove by it today. So uh, every every time I drive by it, or almost every time, I uh, I do the the Vulcan salute as I as I pass them. You can see them from the road. <laughs> did you do what I told you to do last time when you drove by? Did you start singing I, the 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 fight theme? Haven't yet, but time? it is. I did not okay. forget. It is on my agenda to do. All right. so <laughs> okay, it will make happen sure you one do day. <laughs> All right, and Alice, where can people find you? And uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast, Educating Geeks. 
Sure. Um, Educating Geeks is a podcast that comes out every other Friday. And the theme of our podcast is that we invite somebody who hasn't experienced a particular aspect of geekdom. And instead of, you know, demanding their geek card back and giving them a hard time, we say, hey, no, let's all get together and watch it and talk about it. So it's one newbie. And then use one or two newbies, and then usually everybody else has seen it. And we just get together and have a conversation about whatever it is that we watch. And you can find that at educatinggeeks.com. And uh, you can find I'm A-L-C-B-K-R, basically everywhere on the Internet. That's how you can find me. Excellent. Yeah, definitely go check out Educating Geeks. It's a great podcast. And I especially, Alice, enjoyed your discussion of The Legend of Zelda because I'm a huge <laughs> Zelda fan. I've played... I haven't played the latest one, but going back before I became so extremely busy that I didn't have time to play, I've played every Zelda since the very, very original one, and I've had every console, and I buy Nintendo consoles just to play Zelda, because otherwise I play on my PlayStation. And plus, you guys have great Zelda drinking games. So, Oh, yes, we do. We do drinking game rules for all of our topics. So Yes. (laughs) So go check that out as well. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us today, guys. Thank you. It was awesome. Yep. Thanks. (laughs) Wow, uh, what a lot of fun talking about Rapture with uh, Daniel and Alice today. That was, uh, I, I think that was a very fun episode to uh, take part in. It was. I, I really hope we didn't come off as too negative because we did bring up a couple things about the acting, but I didn't mean to. But I did want to talk about them. You know, that's the problem. We all, we sit down as Star Trek fans together and we just talk about whatever comes to mind about the episode and and those things having just watched it again this morning were a little bit fresh in my mind so there you go but i love this episode i do too just it's brilliant yes it it is it really is and you know what if we're able to pick on admiral watley that much uh it means there's so much other good in the episode that it's just what our brains hinged on at that moment absolutely Well, Rapture isn't the only thing that we've been talking about here on the network this past week, so here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. I mean, like, like it's it's been talked about, you know, by Shatner that he's like, oh, I wanted to have the Enterprise find God or something like that. Well, how does that work? Right. You know, and it's like, well, it doesn't work the way you're doing it in this movie. Earl Grey. What if it was like a geeky tween boy? Data, Data, where are you? They're just like, shut that off. <laughs> Mr. Data, I've got a problem. The Ready Room. When they finally do get rid of Decker, it's on Kirk's personal authority as captain of the Enterprise. And like, it seems to me if you're, say, a captain in the U.S. Navy and an admiral takes command of your ship, you can't just like get rid of him because of your personal authority as captain of the ship. The Orb. And again, it's, it's something, as you know, as we said before, the system is not set up to allow him to express that idea in any other way, but by the spectacle of this trial, which would presumably be impossible to hide, it is a way for him to express this alternate viewpoint that maybe the, the morality of his society is, uh, is under threat. To the journey! We are here to talk to you about a very heavy-handed topic. This is kind of a dark area for us. No, I'm just kidding. We're talking about death and Voyager. Commentary, Trek Stars. When they fall out the pod people, and they say, why, what year is it? And Data says, why, it's the Earth year 2364. I fell off my chair 47 times. (laughs) It's like, they just put the, oh, okay, okay. Warp 5. Archer doesn't close himself off to any possibility. He takes the evidence and comes to the best choice that he can. 
And that's not always easy for anyone, but that's the kind of person that Degra is too. Melodic tricks. In fact, it had two versions of the theme, one which ran from seasons one to three and one which ran from season four onwards. Now, some people prefer the first music with the poignancy of the lone trumpet, others prefer the second incarnation. Continuing mission. If we were to sort of able to rewrite the canon, the uniforms we've got, they were the uniforms in the middle of Enterprise and TOS. But because they were designed during a time when peace wasn't as prosperous as it is in the original series the uniforms did have a bit more of a militaristic look to them literary tricks you know what i love about comics though sometimes is what happened here in this panel with beverly and troy clearly troy's stunt double wandered into the scene <laughs> is that troy <laughs> and that's what else is happening on trek.fm so check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find them pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. We're all over the place these days. We are the Jeffrey Combs of Star Trek podcasts. <laughs> he is everywhere. Or John, you may not know, as we're now saying on the network, we are the Von Armstrong of Star Trek podcasts <laughs> because he's also everywhere. You just don't recognize him the way you do Jeffrey Combs. So versatile. So very versatile. He's very, very <laughs> versatile indeed. Now, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom, Spreaker, Swell, BlackBerry. We're on SoundCloud now. We're all over the place. Just search Trek.afilm or the name of the show that you want to listen to, and you'll find us there. And a great way to sample all these shows is to subscribe to the Trek FM Complete Master Feed. This is a single feed that contains every single episode of every show that we do. So you get two, three, maybe four new pieces of content in that feed every single day. So if you want to find out what our other hosts are talking about, what we're talking about in the areas of music or literature, whatever it is, that's a great way to find it. And you can find that in most places that you get podcasts as well. And while you're in the iTunes store, be sure to check out our artist page. It's a great way to find some of the older content. We have almost a thousand episodes here on the network now. A great way to find all the interviews and the past discussions and the character analyses and all the stuff that we talk about here. You can get there by going to iTunes.com slash Trekafilm in your browser. And if you like the shows, please take a moment and leave us a star rating and a written review. We love to hear from you. And it also helps other fans find Trek Film shows as they search in the iTunes store. Now, if you'd like to share your thoughts on today's show, there are a number of ways that you can get in touch with us. You can go to our website at trek.afilm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose the ready room, and that will come to us by email. You can also find us on Twitter at trekfm. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. We're on G+. We have a community there. Just search G plus communities for trek.fm and you'll find us. And you can also send us a voicemail through the website. If you look in the sidebar, you'll see a widget there for that. And John, when you're not, you know, digging through the remains of an ancient Bajoran city, where can people find you? Well, uh, when my uh, synaptic irregularities occur on a weekly basis, uh, you can find me on Words with Nerds, which is a uh, pleasant little podcast where uh, myself and my friend Craig frequently bicker with each other. But uh, it's all done out of love. And you can find that at nerdswords.podbean.com is our main hub. We're also on iTunes, Words with Nerds. 
And if you want to hector me, the best way to do it is through Twitter at Kessel Junkie. Kessel Junkie, do you have a Wookiee co-pilot? I do not. I uh, actually jettisoned him out the airlock because I was really sick and tired of him insisting that I made a uh, space run in less uh, actual distance than it took because I thought (laughs) that was just crazy talk. I thought you just jettisoned him because of his constant whining. (laughs) Well, it wasn't for his hairy body because, uh, well, that would be hypocrisy on my part. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Respect the hair. Exactly. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. Go check out John's podcast there. And if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones, the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere on social media under that same username. So give me a shout and let's talk about Star Trek or whatever you want to talk about. Send me a message on Twitter. That's my favorite place. I will reply to you and let's have a conversation. And elsewhere on the network, you can find me on lots of shows. The other hosts tell me, you should just tell people what you're not on because <laughs> you're on so many of them. I mentioned the Orb already earlier in the show. Matthew Rushing and I do that. It's all about DS9. So if you love DS9, you definitely should tune into the Orb. And also Matthew and I do literary treks together. And we're going through the DS9 relaunch bit by bit on that show the eighth season of DS9, which took place in the novels. We're about five stories or so into that right now. And uh, one thing that I was going to mention in my final thoughts that I didn't is that although Bajor does not join the Federation in this episode, and they don't join the Federation even in the series, even in what you leave behind, they do, as Cisco tells Admiral Watley, eventually join the Federation. In fact, it takes place a year after what you leave behind. So that does come to fruition, as Cisco promised here in Rapture. Then you can find me on a lot of other shows. I'm Actually, I'm not even going to give the spiel today because I'm on so many of them. So just <laughs> go subscribe to the Trek of Film Complete Master Feed and you'll hear me on all those other shows. And do check out the Orb and Literary Treks. Before we let you go, we would like to remind you about our sponsors for today's show. First, there is audible.com, the best source for audiobooks that you'll find anywhere. Go and pick up the Shakespeare... Shakespeare, The World as Stage by Bill Bryson, narrated by the author and just a phenomenal time. It'll be a treat. Put it on your iPod, your MP3 player, whatever you want and listen to it. It is a fantastic listen. It's it's an even better listen than it is a read. So go to audible.com and go pick it up. I find that with a lot of books that, uh, I mean, I like to read the books for oh. sure, but sometimes the audio versions really are better than just sitting down with the book. Well, especially with something, narrator. especially with something that's sort of a, uh, that deals with history like this one does to have the author bring in the flavor that he does to, because he he's a naturally gifted speaker. He brings in a flavor to it. You will walk away from it. A huge Shakespeare fan guaranteed. Mm, absolutely. Well, I'm going to pick it up right after we stop recording because I actually have six credits sitting in my audible account right now. So I'm going to grab that. Nice. So get it for yourself though. You can get it absolutely free as a Trek FM listener Go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up today. If you decide not to stick with Audible, you'll get to keep that book. So there's nothing to lose. But your support really, really does help us keep the ready room coming to you every week. So please do that. Please try them out. I know you're going to love it. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. 
We'd also like to remind you about TrekFan. If you want to be challenged and you love Star Trek, go to fm.trekfan.org. So many great, exciting things for you to do over there. It really is a great challenge, and they'll put you to the test. But go check it out, and also try out Starfleet Academy. Get that free novel that they'll send out for you. Write your review. Share it with a friend. You're going to love TrekFan, and we really thank them for supporting the network. Go again to fm.trekfan.org and try it out. Be sure to use that special URL so they know that you heard about it here on the network and on the Ready Room. Well, John, I am going to take a runabout back down to the planet. It might be dusty down there, but I already know because I have read Avatar, the first novels that continue DS9, and Jake showed me that there's so much to discover in Bahala. I just can't wait to get started. Excellent. Well, then I would say that it is time to stick a floating bicycle wheel in it because the ready room is done. 